you folks, this is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. In this episode, we're following up on the content of the previous episode on tree hay and tree fodder by spending some time chatting with someone about what it looks like to translate these complex ideas and put them into practice. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I'd recommend checking it out, or you could just listen to our chat and see if you'd like to dive in a little deeper to the subject after listening to this conversation. In this episode, not only do we see how many times I can say the word episode in one paragraph, but we talk with Shauna Hansen over at Three Streams Farm up in Maine. She's a wealth of information and has a vast array of experiences working with tree fodder, from chipping it to silage and everything in between. We have a fantastic conversation getting into the weeds of the subject matter. In fact, so much so, this turned into a two-parter. So we'll be dropping the second half of this episode in a few days. So take a listen and let us know what you think. I think you'll enjoy it. Hi, Shauna. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this subject with us. For folks that aren't familiar with Three Streams Farm or with tree silage, tree fodder, um, these different practices of utilizing leaves from trees, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do? So I have a goat and one one cow and more goats, multi-micro dairy with CSA people and people that also just trade, um, come, come and milk or come and learn stuff from me and go home with milk. And I have a friend who's making a lot of aged cheese and I'm going to a market where you can just directly trade things. And I also have a blueberry field on a mountain where the animals sometimes go for field care with me. And that harvest is also income. And we use tree leaves there directly for the blueberries, but a lot of it gets burnt off. And I am really concerned about climate stuff. And I'm also... You know, I became aware once I started getting really serious about feeding animals from trees that there's a lack of practices for our area and knowledge. And so I'm just fascinated to study this stuff. So I interact a lot with other farms and consult often for free. I have been doing a tree fodder seminar each summer, whichever week has July 10th in it, which is my birthday. (laughs) But I think I might just go to people can just schedule with me and come whenever they want and not have all all at once in July because now that I have the blueberry field it's a bit too tight but yeah so I'm doing little research a little education and a lot of wandering with goats and climbing for goats and cow sometimes wandering with the cow too um, I also have a sow here to who, who is really happy if I take the time to bring her some tree stuff She's kind of retired. I was providing organic piglets to the community of guinea, American guinea hogs. She was my poison ivy turner. <laughs> there you go. So, Shauna, how did you end up going down this tree fodder rabbit hole, essentially, where you, you realized the great opportunities that were available? It took the goats, like, I don't know, eight years or so to, you know, I was wandering with two goats for quite a while. Not all the time, like I do, <laughs> not as much of the time as when I have more goats. And they were easy to fill up. Like you could cut a few branches and fill up a couple of goats. Or you could cut, you know, part of a small tree. They pretty much could get what they wanted from my big woods without me cutting that much. And then I did prune trees, fruit trees for people. I've pruned fruit trees for people for pay. 
since 1983. <laughs> so it took them like eight years of pointing up with their noses to get me to start first cut, uh, climbing white cedar trees. And I was, oh, you want me to climb that for you? <laughs> and then I, you know, they were pointing up at an oak tree, a little oak tree that was going to shade the pasture. I'm looking at the big oaks and going, that, that tree can't be on the south side of my pasture. And, and they wanted it. And it was August, late August. And I reached up with the chainsaw and lopped it off, figuring that way they won't kill the sprouts, which is exactly why you pollard in exactly that manner. And it just happened to be the right age and exactly at the right time for the traditional practice. So, you know, my goats knew <laughs> and they said, do this. <laughs> said, that makes sense. I'm going to do it high so you don't kill it. And then the next year I found the word Pollard in a book called Lost Crafts that the library was getting rid of at their book sale. <laughs> and I got really excited that other people did this. And so I went to my cooperative extension agent, Rick Kurzberg, and he's really into like corn silage and... <laughs> <laughs> Very, very conventional. No-till using lots of herbicide. <laughs> yeah. Well, probably, I mean, he wouldn't appreciate me saying lots of, you know, but using herbicide. And I don't, I'm not even sure of that. I shouldn't have said that. Take <laughs> sure. That. <laughs> but Rick is great. He was very helpful. He looked up the word for me because I didn't have internet and found Helen Reed's tour of eight countries to study pollarding. And she's in England. She's in London. She works for the city of London at Burnham Beaches. Burnham Beaches is, I'm not sure, but like 800-year-old beach pollards that aren't doing that well. And I've met Helen a few times since then. But she, uh, so I got a friend to email her to send me her whole study because it wasn't anywhere published. <laughs> but I knew the grant had her, you know, making a, a more of a study than just her blog that I found. And so she sent that on disk and, and I used her bibliography, her reference list to find a lot of other people and started to study. <laughs> so I went back to school with, you know, out on goat walks, studying things. <laughs> yeah, that, that study that you're talking about, I know I found that maybe four or five years ago. And I think we talked about this earlier when we had spoken before we'd recorded. Yeah, it's on the internet now. Yeah. And it's a great resource. It's a, an amazing collection of practices across mostly Europe. I think it was only Europe. In Europe. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely recommend that for folks that are listening to go dig that up. Yeah. And that's in English. Yeah. Uh, one of the few so uh, resources. Most of the other ones weren't. Yeah. <laughs> you, you are a compendium. I know when we'd spoken earlier, you were just dropping names of books in other languages that... Um, were around this subject. When you drive almost <laughs> an hour each direction to sit for two hours with a friend who knows Swedish like multiple times throughout like many different winters <laughs> and you take notes on the book and maybe you even type some of them. You tend to remember it more than if you just read it. <laughs> well, I, and then I keep looking in them, you know, in my notes and paging through the books and getting someone else to check on something. And so I'm really familiar with a handful, you know, like four different pieces of literature and yet I still am missing things in them because some of them are big and fat and we didn't translate the whole thing. We just kind of spot picked where it looked like it was going to give me how-to information. Yeah, I have to be pragmatic about it. Well, I would have done the whole books, but, you know, my friends are only so willing to sit with me for so long and translate. It wasn't their subject, you know. It was a little bit. One of them was, was a state forester who's fluent in German, and I know him from dancing. <laughs> And playing music 
they were dancing and I was in the band. <laughs> and then um, the other one, she's, she's the person that brought cashmere goats to Maine, basically, and she's the president of the Cashmere Society. So she has goats and a big woodland. Awesome. And she's starting to stop because she's quite old, but she's Swedish. So Yvonne, Yvonne was really, really helpful. She even tried to do some Norwegian for me. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I know uh, tree pollarding and tree leaf use is really common, especially in Northern Europe. And I, well, I, I don't want to say it's more. Well, it was common in Northern places, but it's still common in warm places. It's, it's still 98% or more of cow and sheep fodder and probably goats too in Nepal in the mountainous regions, it's like 90 something percent of fodder for those animals is from tall trees that when mostly women are climbing. Oh, that's interesting. I'd, I'd never heard of that. Yeah. I have a video on my website of a woman, I forget her name, but Bijou Pujal took the video, sent it. I asked for it. <laughs> I, I asked for a video. I had a person here that goes to Nepal and has an organization there and she, she got someone to video for me. It's all over lots of warm places are still doing it. Anywhere that hasn't gotten, you know, too industrialized might still be doing it. Yeah, I've heard of the fodder blocks that are becoming more common in places like Brazil, but I wasn't familiar with any more. Um, I don't know about that. Yeah, so it's essentially just um, shorter pollards, like two feet tall and creating like these giant stumps. Oh, like a fodder bank. Yeah. Yeah. So that, but that's more of a modern, like industrialized practice versus like more of the indigenous, which I think you're talking about. So they're cutting and carrying. It's called cut and carry. Like they're carrying it to livestock. Uh, no, I think they're working them through like a grazing pattern, essentially, where the blocks are every couple feet. Oh, okay. So, well, yeah, because Juan Alves, who's at University of Vermont, before he was there, he was in Peru, I believe. They had a funding for a 10 year study and they were, well, it was a project. They were supporting farmers to change to um, sustainable practices with cattle, and they were able to support much more cattle on much less land and have it be really regenerative. And because it was 10 years, it was very effective. They picked community leaders, et cetera, and started with those guys. And anyway, but it, it involved tree fodder. And he said that there, the trees almost have the same rotation as the grass. They grow so fast. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting out of it. Uh, the whole different thing in the north. Yeah. Ingvildalstad in Norway, which is quite cold. It's probably similar to here where I am, but we're not as cold, cold as we used to be. Sure. Anyway, he says that people said that a five-year rotation was considered sustainable for the trees. Oh. And Hakansvant in Sweden said people did from three to eight-year cycles. Yeah, and that's also based on species, too. Fodder. Based on species, based on soil richness. So Mashatschek in Austria, the big fat German book that I didn't read all the details of <laughs> that I would like to, says that in a really rich place, you might do every year cycle oh, wow. <laughs> if it's really rich soil and moist but mostly longer than that and so you have to think so the longer the cycles and depending how fast the tree is growing the more gommy the stuff that you're taking down is and it's it can be pretty dangerous taking down really big stuff you know branches so i've got some prunus pollards in what used to be a chicken yard and three-year growth the growth is like going to be like over 20 feet long <laughs> And so the bases are going to be like three, four inches thick of the things I'm cutting off of the new growth. You probably wouldn't want to leave that for 
you know, seven or eight years because it's just going to be like, you know, felling timber. <laughs> yeah. These, I've got these willows that are probably about five inches in diameter uh, and they're two years since yeah, right. I coppiced them. And I'm like, oh, I guess, you know, I've got some kindling for firewood and uh, some leaf uh, leaves for my sheep. Yeah. The goats eat all the bark off and all the twigs and the cattle even eat the twigs and they'll even eat it in the winter when it doesn't have leaves. Your sheep may eat more than you, you want to give them. <laughs> you might lose most of the wood to the sheep <laughs> if you, if you let them at it first, you know, before you take your wood. Yeah. So that was one of the things I didn't realize I'd read a bit in Sweden that it was common to chip the branches so that what they would explain is it would give the sheep or goats something to do during the winter while they were cooped up and also to slow them down eating but i didn't get the impression that the animals were actually eating a lot of the chips themselves well susan's sheep so i have a friend susan who's making my cheese or our cheese whoever i don't eat that much of it because i have milk all year round but um the whole community is getting it <laughs> it's wrapped in beeswax or dipped in beeswax I've got barrels of wheels collecting in my root cellar. And uh, she, she has milking sheep, um, Frisian Dorset cross sheep. So we got Lucas Tree Company, which is a line clearing company, the biggest, probably the biggest one in Maine. It's statewide. They're working with me a bit here and there, and we keep trying to get funding. We, we will eventually. But anyway, we ran a load of their chips just straight, just the way they come out into the truck. And apparently they stay anaerobic in the truck because they're blown in so fast and they're really packed in the truck. But when you dump it out, it starts to compost. So we weren't sure we could get it into barrels fast enough, but so we had to try a load before I wrote any grant proposals. <laughs> so last fall we did this and we packed probably a ton and a half. Anyway, Susan's sheep used it the best and they made the wood pieces kind of round. Oh, interesting. <laughs> They sucked on <laughs> They ate all the leaves out and then they kind of chewed on the wood pieces. And she was giving them other stuff, but she was, she was substituting her, their evening hay. She was just giving them, I think, a gallon each of that instead of giving them a little bit of extra hay overnight. Yeah, I, you know, that's one of the things is like I've, I've got my sheep and I do, I try to utilize tree hay and like I, I know how to measure out how much hay they should have. But when it comes to using like that tree fodder, leaf hay, silage, anything like that, the measurements aren't equal. So how do you figure out exactly what you should feed? And so it depends probably what sheep, you know, we don't know what sheep um, Linnaeus had in seven, mid 1700s in Sweden. But in Helen's study, I think it's where she talks about that. So the, apparently Linnaeus, who made the Latin plant classification system, was it a dozen sheep? I used to be able to recite this. I think it was a dozen sheep and a hundred basswood pollards. And they all got cut in a three-year rotation. So doing like 33 trees a year. And he got 80 to hundred sheaves off of each tree. So I don't know. I would like to see <laughs> pictures of those pollards if they were one huge head and they were just really old or if they had lots of heads. In any case, they must've been really old and well-established to make 80 to hundred sheaves. Cause a sheaf is like probably you put your, your, middle finger and your thumbs together mm -hmm. and that's the neck of the sheaf and then it's probably like a meter long the leafiest you know portions cut off about a meter long and make these sheaves and he said how many the sheep ate um but i think it was like one and a half sheaves a day per sheep something like that 
Yeah, I'd guess that's probably about 15 pounds with the with the branch itself, if I were to guess ballpark. 10, 15 pounds. Yeah, I mean, if you just take the leaves off, it doesn't look like much. No, it doesn't. So I'm thinking, well, they were probably small sheep. They probably weren't trying to grow or milk them in the winter, just, just maintenance. And then do your seasonal milking in the summer or, you know, if they were just meat sheep, then, you know, you kill the lambs in the fall and just winter the, the stock pregnant. You know, that's an interesting measurement technique in trying to calculate exactly how this relates. Well, sheaves were quite standard because people traded sheaves. Like there were commerce rates for this sheaf for that. <laughs> you know, um, Ak Carl, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, Ak, Ak Carlson um, did the study of the farmer journals in Sweden. I, I haven't. Have you seen that? We translated it informally. <laughs> we didn't ask him. Um, and it's on my website under resources we uh actually michael walder typed it for me uh, michael walder does a lot of what you call tree hay he calls it that tree hay. he he actually cuts stuff and dries it he has arborist skills that he uses for his goats and he he was supporting the whole family with three kids i think on just meat goats so it was a good good sized herd and he was cutting like 300 pounds edible portion in like a couple oh, wow. hours each day <laughs> He's an arborist and he's younger than me and really good at it. Yeah, but he, he typed that for me because he wanted to see it also, you know. But anyway, so the farmer journals, what was I going to say about that? Oh, just that they said that, you know, crews came up the river to help with the harvests and they'd auction off the trees at the churchyard. One poplar sheaf was worth two birch sheaves because the poplar, of course, was, you know, horses were probably high class, right? Horses like poplar and birch sheaves are generally for sheep. But I, my cow just scarfed up some birch sheaves the other day. She's kind of desperate for any tree matter because where, where I have her right now, there's no trees. So each time I come to milk her, which is like every couple days, she's in her second year of milk. So she's not giving a lot. And each time I come, I've been bringing her some taste of what I've been cutting for the goats. And she ate it pretty well, that beach, the birch, which is not, not a cattle favorite. Today I gave her ash and she hardly would stand still for milking. She was so excited. <laughs> hey there, it's Andy from the Pork Rolls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting porkrolls.com clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. Yeah, I find my sheep are really big fans of Willow, which obviously has a lot of other benefits. And that brings me to your most, I'm not sure if it's your most recent, but one of your more recent works that you uh, recently posted on your website about breaking down the chemical compounds of some of the various things that you've been working on to see exactly how useful. Well, that, yeah, that was the UVM yes. mini grant that was, that was just taking the samples that we already had from the SARE grant where we did my... 55-year-old woodland. Yeah, so could you talk a little bit about that? So the samples mostly, some of them came from other trees and some of them had been trees that were pollarded here. 
at my farm, but mostly they came from this one acre of my woodland that was a closed canopy, except for some firewood that had been taken out. And we felled a lot of fir trees because they're not a top choice and they don't, they weren't going to pollard well because they didn't have any low branches that were still alive. <laughs> and so it's a little open now, but the tr- so the trees were getting the stuff that got tested were these tall spindly things with small tops because they were kind of shading each other out. So when we were pollarding these trees, the, the poplars didn't make it because there was really hardly anything you could cut off, you know? Yeah, I mean, they couldn't spare any top. They're, ta- they're inefficient forms when they're tall, tall, tall with nothing on it until the very top. But the oaks sprouted all the way to the ground. Like they didn't mind their whole top being cut off and they just compensated by making sprouts all along the trunk. So you can see why they thought of, um, you can see why it's traditional to quote shred oaks in many, many places in Europe, which is you cut all the side branches off and the top and maintain them that way every three years. So you're just cutting fodder right back to the trunk. And that way you still have a saw log at the end of it all. It's like a compromise. I think it was maybe a later thing than just regular lopping and leaving a climbing structure um, because, you know, people wanted saw logs. There was a lot of class conflict, you know, saw logs versus lopping. And this was maybe a compromise, but I don't, I'm making that part up, but I do know that, you know, Ben Law has a beautiful picture of Albania, Albanian oaks on a hillside on a quite sloped hillside with ladders up to them. And they'd all been just cut and they look like telephone poles. It's just amazing that they gain diameter and then end up saw logs with every third ring having these tiny little three-year knots. So it must be like furniture wood, kind of specialty wood. And it grows slowly. It grows a little more slowly than if you weren't cutting all the leaves off. So it's probably really, really strong with tight, you know, rings. Anyway, you can see why that practice would develop because oaks, every time I cut the top off of an oak, it has sprouted, sprouts all the way down. And the next time you harvest, you can climb the sprouts. (laughs) That's awesome. Like we had to, you know, we had to use throw balls to get the ropes up there. And then the next time we can, we don't even need a ladder. But the ash just made huge top knots. They just were Dr. Seuss trees. And in, um, so I recently became acquainted with Kevin Smith, Kevin T. Smith, who's at the USDA Research Center Research Station in Durham, New Hampshire. And he's a tree physiologist. And so he came to my tree fodder seminar and toured our woods with me and the people that were here. And he just knows a lot about tree healing and how trees cope with being damaged. And here we are damaging all these trees. So I thought I got to make a friend of this guy and find out, you know, what's the best way to damage these trees in ways that they are going to appreciate and, and be okay with, you know? So I'm going to con- continue to interact with him. But I looked at his studies and he studied the ice storm in 19, 1998. Him and another guy were mostly responsible for everybody not cutting all the trees down immediately because they said, we think they're going to live. And they, they studied and they said, yeah, the trees actually didn't lose that much lumber value and they didn't lose that much growth. And the ash trees in particular replaced their tops so well that there wasn't even a change in the growth ring size oh, wow. from having their tops like completely broken off like toothpicks. Like you'd see a hillside in Waldo County here. I wasn't here. I was in Skowhegan and it was mostly snow and we didn't really have such a nice storm, but we were just over the line. Like everything east of us, the hillsides looked like toothpicks. 
and and my mother teases me now she's 89 and she she likes to point out you know the faults sometimes so she she's like you said all those trees were gonna die i'm like well i'm glad that i was wrong <laughs> but kevin smith and and another guy showed people that they weren't going to die so that they didn't overreact and cut the woods down. Yeah, so my ash trees did the same thing when we pollarded their tops. They just made these huge top knots and replaced their tops very they're, they're still doing it. I mean, it's only been two years, but they're replacing their tops very quickly. And some of them are kind of in the second and a little in a delayed way, they started making some trunk sprouts also. Um, the oaks are very shade tolerant, so they are more likely to like make trunk sprouts even when it isn't full sun. The ashes in full sun are more likely to do it, but they don't do it right away the way the oaks do. They mostly focus on their tops. So we'll still have to use ropes maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's one thing I've noticed here is as I've cleaned out, I have like an early stage successional. It's mostly pines, which are you know marginally useful. Yeah, well, finish your thought and then sure. let's come back yeah. to pines because yeah. I discovered something this summer, which was another thing that the goats have been telling me for eight years. <laughs> When I, we've been clearing things up, there's been a lot of smaller oaks that I was just trying to thin through because they're all in clusters. And after I'd cut them down, you know, they send up those shoots, even though it's still pretty shady. And uh, I end up harvesting them and feeding them to the, the sheep probably once every month or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they just keep coming back like crazy. And, you know, I, it's like, do I want to try to kill them or do I actually want to keep them going and just keep feeding, you know? I know. And so you probably don't want to cut them as frequently despite the fact that they you know you look in the yard it almost looks like a nuisance because you've got these like key line laid out trees that are coming in with this heavy canopy above that needs to still get thinned and then these random oaks that spring up walter yana who's a soil scientist from retired soil scientist from australia who's totally onto climate stuff now and john norman who's a retired person who studied remote sensing of plant evapotranspiration they figured out a rate of how much more greenery we would need to stabilize the climate. They said 11.6% increase on all livable land surfaces. If we did all land surfaces, it'd be like 5%, but we can't be in some deserts and we can't be on some mountaintops that are just inaccessible. So 11.6% if we did all livable land surfaces, or if we just did agricultural lands, it would, it would be like 20, I forget, 23% or 25%, I think 23% percent of increase in plant transpiration or evapotranspiration, evaporation plus transpiration. You know, the stripping of greenery on the planet has been more than 90% of the climate um, disruption. And we continue to destroy, we continue to dry out surfaces and, and dig gravel pits and pave and put roofs and, and make yards instead of woodlands. <laughs> and the hydrology is much less, you know, everybody wants a dry place to walk. Everybody wants their insides of their buildings to be dry. So everything's getting dried, dried, dried. Sure. And also we're losing soil tills because of the way we do agriculture doesn't have nutrient cycles anymore. Now it just goes one way to the market and then they flush it down their toilet. And the livestock even are far away sometimes from their feed sources. So they're not even putting manure back to the same field. So, and then we're losing soil fertility because of the rain cycles, because here we had five droughts in six years and the, the fungi in the soil die or get at least impaired in a long-term kind of way. And then when the rain does come, it doesn't hold the moisture. And then the soil, when you stick a fork in, it runs through like sand. And when the rain happens, you don't see erosion, but the nutrients are leaching out because there's not that life that's holding the nutrients. 
So you have this erosion that you can't even see that's just taking away the nutrients out of your soil when it gets impoverished like that from all these droughts. So like we're losing fertility right and left in all these ways that we're living, plus the climate, you know, snowball that's rolling now is losing even more. Where, where do we get there from there? So, so those oaks that are coming up in your woodland, they're trying to cover that soil with greenery. And the highest correlate of biodiversity that's actually used to measure biodiversity because it's such a good correlate is uh, foliage height diversity, as in leaves on lots of in lots of different layers on a big wide up and down spectrum. So that's why I did do a 55 year old woodland because there also were little trees in there and I can have all this foliage at all different heights. And actually, honestly, the, the trees that we pollarded, we took off, you know, 15, 20 feet of height. And by the time five years has passed that, and ready to harvest again, they might be back to the same height. We didn't actually shorten them that much. We just made the next cut easier because we brought everything closer to the trunks and we'll know where to cut next time and they'll be more climbable. But that foliage height diversity is a, a really tight correlate with biodiversity, which is also a really tight correlate with carbon sequestration. But carbon sequestration is not the biggest thing that matters except for the soil. For the soil, carbon sequestration means moisture regulation. So it's good for droughts, it's good for flooding. Um, the more carbon in the soil, the better resilience of the soil for flooding and for droughts. And that's from a forestry article. Um, they said root turnover is the highest, you know, the best thing for soil resilience for droughts and waterlogging. And that was Ninemetz et al. I forget the year. <laughs> Ninemetz, just like I said it. <laughs> but so, so when you pollard, you get that root dieback and regrowth. So they weren't talking about pollarding. They were talking about forestry. But they said that root turnover is the highest, the best thing for your soil to be water resilient, whether it be drought or waterlogging. And pollarding makes that root dieback and regrowth cycle with the pruning, which Ingvild Alstead in Norway talks about as the pioneer fertilization effect. She says it releases nitrogen when those little tiny, tiny roots die and it feeds the ground layer, including the hay underneath or the crop that you're growing under your pollards. And then the moisture retention is because you get that regrowth and die, regrowth and, and die every time you prune. And it just puts all this humus matter, dead or not humus, but compost, you know, composting little roots into that soil and makes a really spongy structure of carbon down there. Yeah, it's almost like a perennial version of like planting crops that would break the soil up, except you're not removing any of the trees like you might with say radishes or something like that. Yeah, you're just pruning in cycles <laughs> and causing things to happen underground. And then meanwhile, all those years that you don't do it, the tree's dropping leaves. So Ingbild, who's in Norway, she's a biologist who studies this stuff. She says that between the root die back and regrowth and the leaf drop, they didn't used to traditionally have to manure the fields. They used to be able to take one late hay crop off and the tree leaves every three years. Well, one hay crop every year, the tree leaves every third year in a wooded hay meadow that was pollards over pasture and hay. And they, they had one quick graze of the sheep, I think in the spring, and then they, they had one cut of hay and then they had leaf harvests every third year. And she said, the tree leaves dropping plus the fertilization from the roots was enough 
that they didn't have to manure that field any more than that one quick sheep graze to be sustainable. To transition back, you uh, we were talking about utilization of trees in these different ways. I want to pivot back to something you'd commented on. Well, yeah, and we also wanted to go back to pine. Yeah, that's what I was actually going to ask you to go back okay. to. So could you tell me a little bit about what you've recently learned about utilizing white pine? Yeah, well, there's still more to do. So I was like, I'm writing a, another farmer grant proposal because <laughs> I just got rejected on a novel approaches, Sarah, bigger one. And so we're, we'll go for a farmer one. So I've always said, well, pine is just, you know, salad. It's not really a staple. They, eat, they nibble it a little bit in the winter. I try to give it to them when I'm giving them fur to strip bark in the spring. Fur isn't a real first pick either. But in the spring, there's a time when they really like to strip the bark and it runs kind of sugar water under the bark. The pine is like one down from the fur, but some of them that I've pollarded that is juicy growth, they'll strip some of it. But all these years, they've been trying to kill the ones in the pasture in the summer. And it finally got through to me. Maybe they want to eat it in the summer. And so I have these ones that I pollarded because otherwise they get tall and they're in the pasture as kind of barns. I left them for the shelter. So they're groups of pines that are pretty thick trunks, but I lopped them off probably at, I don't know, 10, 12 feet. And then they make, make new tops right away, just like most trees. And the new tops are now like seven inch diameter because they grow fast in the pasture. And, and now I'm lopping them off again. And I specifically started lopping more of them this summer. I don't know if it was just a later season for them because it rains, because it didn't rain all spring and it didn't have moisture from the winter. So we were in a drought until the end of July. And then suddenly we have had rain ever since. So it's almost like a second spring, but they were eating pine bark, stripping it off of those whole seven inch trunks plus the branches, like stripping everything quite easily, even though I feed them well and they were on good paddocks and taking, you know, six hours of wandering a day, <laughs> but they still wanted it. And um, all of August. So that's like usually your grass slump. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. But we weren't having as much of a slump with the rain. And so I want to nutritionally test it in the summer or at least during its growing season. I just talked to my guy who wants to make the, the leaf separator for us, who does uh, willow biomass research stuff. He, he does the machines for them at State University of New York. He's been collaborating with me on these ones that I haven't been getting, <laughs> the, the grant proposals. So he's in this one too. But um, he, he just said yesterday, we were talking on the phone, and he said he's you know, familiar with the logging world as well as being an ex-dairy farmer. And he says, yeah, mostly the pine usually strips in the first half of the summer, but not so much in the second half. Like that's when it gets quote, damaged the most when you're locking. So we want it to slip because, you know, we want them to get the bark off easily or maybe have other ways of getting it off and siling it, but it could be pretty messy. The goats, by the way, my white goats end up looking quite black or at least, you know, Dalmatian <laughs> spots <laughs> for quite a while because the pitch turns black. It smells good though. Yeah. I just took down a couple of pines probably three weeks ago and I was, I fed all the tops to my sheep and they like like you said they nibbled on it for maybe a couple minutes and then they're like all right i'm done but but did you give them the juicy parts of the wood uh I, it was probably the top 10 feet of the tree because so there know, was some bark opportunity yes. but they may just not know how to strip bark yeah i mean I, they're they're icelandics so 
Susan's sheep kind of know how to strip bark. Elliot's sheep, which are actually Icelandics like yours, don't really strip bark. Yeah, I've never seen them do it, so I'm not surprised, I guess. So you might want to get a goat over there to show them. No, I'm serious, because Susan's learned from goats. Oh, they can. That's interesting. Yeah, but the goats will jump all your fences. So you don't keep yeah, them. well, these guys are pretty, you know, they, they don't listen to many laws of physics when it comes to fences either. So, <laughs> um, Yeah, so pine bark, I was specifically cutting more this year because I had one goat with a mange issue pop up. She's a virgin milker, and I think the hormonal stress, I don't know, but she suddenly had this awful mange thing going on, and I was looking up stuff and one of the things to give her was lots of vitamin c and i hardly like to use anything that's not here so i'm like i'll just cut them a bunch of pine because i know all the evergreens have lots of vitamin c and they just devoured it for like quite a few weeks i kept some around for them to strip hopefully you guys enjoyed the first half of this interview in the next episode we'll be continuing this conversation to support this project, you can go over to Patreon or poorprolls.com to access our social media on various platforms. And, of course, support us on iTunes by giving us a review, which increases our odds of getting new, more exciting guests as we continue to grow. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac. <laughs> <laughs>